Good morning, everybody. How are we all doing this morning? Good. Happy Thanksgiving. Glad you were here. We're, uh, so we're going to jump into a time of sharing, uh, and we're going to share about this series. So as you're thinking about um, the last eight or nine weeks as we've been charging through the, the Elephant series, those of you who've been tracking with us, um, begin to think what, what maybe God would have you share with us, with the community this morning. Let me tell you, uh, if you are new in town, what we've been doing. Uh, when school started, because our church operates very much on a school schedule based on the amount of college students we have here. Uh, so when school started in that early September, we embarked in a new series that we're calling Elephants. Elephants were the issues or hot topics in our culture that the church is not talking about. So we talked about things like war and peace and mental health and politics and sexuality. And, and there were a number of these different topics uh, that, that the uh, communicators up here on Sunday morning um, broached and, and tried to bring light to, tried to see what does the scripture really say about these things. Um, so that has been our journey. If you're new, you have uh, joined us on our question and answer weekend. So throughout the series, we have been collecting questions that uh, people who are attending on Sundays have been uh, wondering about, have been asking. And so we've uh, designed a, or we've got a texting number and people have been texting in questions throughout the entire series. We can, probably came up with maybe 45 or 50 different questions, and, and over the last week we have condensed some of these and put uh, similar questions together, and we have about 25 or 26 questions this morning that uh, we're going to begin to jump in and, and try to answer as, as best as we can. So that sets the stage. If you're new, that's what we're doing this morning, so this morning we'll look a little bit different. There'll be three of us up on stage, uh, and we're going to be going through these questions and, and beginning to try to lend some insight to them. So... Hey, let's, uh, let's welcome Russ and Jeff to the stage. How about Jeff being back with us, huh? Woohoo! Yeah. Good. People are really excited about that, Jeff, so <laughs> welcome back. <laughs> uh, as Kevin has already stated, we have gathered all of the questions, uh, kind of went through the list tossed out the statements, found the things that were just questions, and uh, began to kind of refine those a little bit and put them into a list. We don't know the order of the list. We just know the questions that will probably be asked on the list. The plan is for us to cover all of the questions. And before you freak out, um, because you heard the number that Kevin said, the plan is to cover all of the questions over both services. So what I mean by that is you might get to half of them during this one and half of them in the second service. So your question that you posed may or may not be answered during this particular service. But, however, it will be recorded, it will be put online, so you'll be able to kind of just fast forward to the point where this service leaves off and see if perhaps your question was answered. The other thing that we're planning on doing after both services, we announced it last week, so we're planning on having a Q&A time uh, just kind of up front here or off to the side where for about 20 minutes after this service, we'll answer any additional questions that these questions may have surfaced in you. And then uh, after the second service, we'll go for about 30 or 45 minutes because we're not time constraint um, of having a second service. So we'll, uh, we'll answer more questions then. Uh, the other hope or plan, time permitting, is to open it up for questions that maybe you didn't uh, text in, but questions that you have right now or that you've had throughout the series that you'd like us to try to address. Um, so that's a, a little bit of what we're hoping to do over the next 
little while. But I wanted to, before we jumped in and started answering these questions, I wanted to remind us a little bit of where we started. When we first started this series, before we got into any of the elephants and started to address uh, each specific topic, one of the things that we talked about at the very beginning is how do you walk in to these kinds of things as a community and do that well? And so we talked about unity, humility, love, some of those things. But one of the foundational things we talked about at the beginning was levels of conversation. That all our conversation that we have generally comes in one of three categories when it relates to these particular topics. You have the first category, which would often be defined as dogma. It is those uh, beliefs that are essential to the gospel. So dogma would be a category that would... um, be so important in Christianity without this belief it would cease to be Christianity. So for example, um, some of the creed creed we just quoted, uh, the truth in that, Jesus being God, things like that, where if you stopped believing it, it would equal a rejection of the gospel. Okay? That's dogma. So some of what we've talked about during this series, some of what we'll talk about this morning, fits into that level of non-negotiable dogma. Then there are two other categories, the second category being doctrine, that there are certain things that we will talk about this morning that fit in that category of doctrine where they are considered important to the church, into the life of the church, but not essential, not willing to be a martyr for any of these particular subjects, okay? So if you're wondering what are some of those examples, uh, it would be different Uh, systems of theology like Calvinist or Wesleyan, uh, whether God has foreknowledge or doesn't, baptism by sprinkling or immersion, feet washing, whatever it is that a particular church or denomination holds that divides it from another church or denomination. And we have a ton of things that fit into this category of doctrine. That's why there's like 33,000 different denominations. We just can't agree on anything. And so what we choose to do is just go, well, since you believe that, I'll believe this and we'll form another group over here. Uh, That's obviously not the goal of doctrine. Doctrine is designed to help people rally around a particular idea related to faith, one that we can talk about that isn't essential. It isn't like a the be-all, end-all of faith, that's dogma, but rather important subjects related to the gospel, okay? Then the third is the area of opinion. That's a belief relegated to the status of opinion as one where Jeff might hold one opinion, I might hold a different opinion. Neither of them are relatively significant to the life of the church. We might hold a particular view, we might believe or have a leaning a particular way, Uh, It's not ratified in stone. It's not something that we hang everything on. But it's uh, just generally an opinion. The church has lots of these. Whether it's uh, from choices like drinking or dancing, these are opinion matters. Whether it's uh, what type of schooling you might have your kids uh, be engaged in. Um, All kinds of not central, not dogma, but rather just common everyday opinion. What you're going to hear today is a blending of all three. We'll try to be uh, clear and concise as to when we are speaking strictly to the idea of dogma and then when it's doctrine or opinion. So that's the hope. We're going to cover all three levels of conversation. Some of what you're going to hear is just opinion. And by the way, we don't all agree on everything we're going to say this morning. 
Any other thoughts from either of you before we jump in and answer questions? Uh, yeah, I, I think I would say maybe one thing. The, uh, and we had talked about this earlier this morning. This represents both what I think is the most beautiful aspect of the church, but potentially my least favorite part of the church as well. And let me explain this. Um, I think this can be beautiful this morning because, again, we sit here, and on some things, we're not going to agree. And uh, the fact that we can still sit here, that we can be in one place, that we can be unified beyond our disagreements, I think is incredibly beautiful. I think that's what the gospel talks about when it talks about unity, uh, that those may know who Jesus is because we are a unified people. Um, But it's dangerous as well because I think sometimes there's a tendency for people to sit in a church service and listen to one person, three people, whoever's up on stage and say, well, that is the final authoritative teaching on that issue from the church's position. Um, That is not what this morning is to be designed for. It's not what what this is intended for. Nor is it intended to say, well, that is Kevin's final authoritative position or opinion on that one issue. If you guys have been in conversations before and questions are posed to you, know that uh, if you're anything like me, sometimes you have to kind of walk yourself through your process. You have to externally process a little bit to get at your point. So um, it's dangerous maybe in the fact that uh, if you find yourself sitting here this morning, taking notes, waiting for us to slip up, waiting for us to say that one trigger word, that then you're going to say, okay, now we're wrong, or now they're wrong, or now we disagree, I would say maybe question your motive in that. Um, That's not, again, what this is designed for. This is designed to be an ongoing dialogue where we're being vulnerable up here saying, hey, this is how we see this. Uh, That's why we have question and answer times after this. That's why we're willing and ready to meet with anybody to say, let's process this more. Change my mind on this. So that would be my last thought with this. Kelly, I liked what you said. Um, This is not the end of the discussion. This is the beginning of many, many discussions. It's actually the continuation of a discussion and discussions that have been happening in the church for 2,000 years. Um, So to think that we're going to come to some conclusions in these next minutes uh, is a bit arrogant. Um, The best place for this to continue is in community. So continue in your groups um, to wrestle. Uh, I have so appreciated the generous orthodoxy that exists here at New Community um, that we can have a, a variety of opinions on some of these matters and yet still uh, all be pointers to Christ, to the truth. Um, so I encourage you to continue on in that way. Uh, God, we are, we are humbled in your presence. Lord, you are the author and perfecter of our faith. Lord, you know the answers to these questions. For that, we, uh, we avail ourselves to the work of your Holy Spirit this morning. God, allow each of us to have uh, hearts that would be open to your movement, minds that would be open to your truth. God, if any one of us holds uh, or, or is trying to contain you in, in some theological box that we've built, Lord, uh, I pray that you would expose that and allow us to understand the, the depth of who you are the depth and and mystery of really how you have worked through people. Lord, we pray here that uh, this morning would be a morning of, uh, again, unification, not division. But as we question, as we wrestle, as we struggle with this stuff, Lord, may may we walk, walk alongside each other arm in arm, knowing that you are so much bigger than our differences, God, and that you that you are truth, and we seek that, God. 
So guide this morning. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right, Shane, question. Is it greedy to save money to provide for our family for emergencies, home renovations, investments, etc.? Thoughts? Uh, I'll take a stab at that. Um, the fact that the word greedy is used in there means that, yes, it is greedy. Um, <laughs> if something is greedy, it is greedy. We can laugh this, we can laugh this morning. Is that Yo, right? Yeah, that was yeah. meant kind of as a Okay, there will be some jokes. Okay, joke good. Kind of a thing, yeah. Um, here, here's how I, I approach that, and this is opinion. Um, it is not against God's will for us to plan. We see biblical examples of that. We see um, the, the parables of the talents and, and other places where uh, we see that it's okay to manage money wisely. I have a wonderful Christian friend who is growing in his faith by leaps and bounds, and he's also an investment advisor and money manager. Uh, that doesn't make him greedy or against God's will. To provide for our families um, is not, I believe, greedy or against God's will. Here is where the fine line is. When we start placing our hope in things that are of the world, like money, and we stop placing our hope in Jesus, then our priorities get mixed up, and then it does become something like greed. Um, when we start to be so consumed by our finances that it is creating anxiety and stress and unrest in our lives, then that may be a sign that we have crossed the line into uh, greed. When we realize that our first love, Jesus, has been replaced by something else, whether that's money or lust or some other thing, then we have crossed the line. So is it greedy to save for the future? Is it greedy to provide for one family? Um, no. If your first love becomes those things, yes. Good. We'll move on. <laughs> Definitive statement right there. It's, it's going to be that easy? Yeah. Sure. Oh, good. I'll add one other little thing. I, it's just, for me, opinion, it's just a matter of trust. Where do I place my trust? And when, and it's, for me, it's clear when I begin to go, well, if, if the van breaks down, we've got, or if this happens, we cover it. When, I, when I'm going, I'm the supplier of my needs, and I'm trusting me or trusting my bank account or trusting my bottom line statement, for me, that becomes an issue where I begin to see, man, is my allegiance shifted to my own provision or is my initial reaction, God will come through on this. And maybe his coming through on it is because I've set aside money. And maybe his coming through on it is this body of Christ who is here for one another and it's what we're called to. So it's an issue of trust for me. All right. So maybe it's not that easy because I'll add something too. Okay. <laughs> um, I, I think fear is the motivator too, is what I would add. So, so when these things, when our trust lacks because fear is motivating the decisions, that's, that's too when I see that, that greed tends to set in or that, that mentality where you, you become God of your own life when we allow fear to, to dictate what we do. Good. Moving on. Next question. Is the Bible Dogma. Our yes answers won't no. always go in this order, <laughs> by the way. Do um, I start with that, Jeff? I, I will start with that. Yes. 
Sure. Oh, I mean, I will start with it. It's the Bible dogma. Sure. By your definition a second ago, which is if we were to stop believing in this, it would negate the faith, then by that definition, yes, the Bible is dogma. However, um, I'm also going to say no, because I do not believe that dogma is the primary purpose of the scriptures. The primary purpose of the scripture is to be a revelation and a pointer to Jesus. The Bible is revelation. So if we can answer that question with the Bible is revelation before we say dogma, then absolutely. Um, we see in John chapter 20, verse 21, where John says, what is the purpose of this book? Is gospel of Jesus. He says, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus Christ is the son of God, that by believing you may have life in his name. Signs. This book is a collection of signs that point to God and to Jesus as the revelation of um, God's existence in our, in our lives. Um, so this book is revelation. When we start to hold this book up as more important than what it points to, we get in trouble. Um, because then we start to build those boundaries and look to the boundary instead of at the source, which is Jesus. So, of course, it's critically important. Of course, it's inspired. Uh, but the scriptures exist as a pointer to Jesus. Um, the Holy Spirit uses this revelation as a pointer to Jesus. Um, so... By your definition of dogma, yes, but let's remember that the scriptures are revelation. Yeah, we talked about this a little bit when we were discussing one of the elephants and uh, looking at the lens of biblical interpretation. I think a lot of times we tend to see this book more as a mirror that reflects me, which is part of its intended purpose. It talks about that in the New Testament, that, that this can penetrate to our heart and reveal things about us. It's a mirror in some ways. Um, but when we begin to hold this up as the be-all, end-all of everything, um, that's where I think we begin to miss the point that it is a lens through which we look to see Jesus, that he is the ultimate revelation. This is a means of communicating who he is. And sometimes we call it idolatry. We make this the thing we worship rather than God the thing we worship or the person we worship. Uh, that's when, when it gets tricky when we get there. Um, God has to, Jesus has to always be the center of our worship. This aids in us worshiping him. This doesn't become the center of our worship. Any other thoughts? That's great. Good. Moving on. What do you do when you've already crossed that line in a relationship? I assume crossing the line means having sex. Just stop having sex. That seems to cause more damage to a relationship when you already know someone in that way. So obviously these are not coming in any particular order related to the order that we have uh, gone through the series. We're just jumping right in with the subject of sex. So what do you do, the, the question is, what do you do when you've already crossed the line, when you've already had sex with someone else, do you just stop having sex? The short answer is yes, okay? Um, because if you believe, like I do, and I believe that the scriptures teach that sex outside of marriage is inappropriate, it's wrong, it's missing the mark, whatever term you want to give it, a lack of obedience. If you believe that's what the scriptures teach, and I do, 
Um, it's God's will that we abstain from sexual immorality, 1 Thessalonians 4. We can give lots of passages that speak to that particular idea. If you believe it's wrong, then for you to continue in it, regardless of how difficult that conversation will be to talk about why you're no longer having sex or the jeopardy that that relationship uh, or the uneasiness that will come to the relationship, I think, first and foremost, you need to stop. Now, that does mean that you need to enter into some deep conversations. It means that you need to express feelings and emotions that uh, will make stopping difficult. I think you have to set up boundaries. You have to talk through a lot of those kinds of ideas. But first and foremost, certainly, I think you have to stop. Um, And then I would enter into a relationship with other people where you discuss what are boundaries that are appropriate, how do we do that, lean on community for support, Um, lean on your small group or accountability partners, ask for them to kind of speak into your life on that, to keep you accountable. Uh, There's lots of layers to this, but that initial layer would be that. Other thoughts you guys would add? Yeah, I mean, I would just say um, I think you have to trust that God honors obedience and that, uh, that he will give you the means by which your relationship reestablishes health. And, and again, this will be opinion, and maybe I'll go out on a limb a little bit here, but it, uh, if you find yourself in that type of relationship and you feel convicted to say, okay, we're going to stop having sex, and your partner um, pushes back on that, and, and this becomes a significant issue, maybe that's a good indicator to question the relationship in of itself. Um, I mean, I, I think we, we would all hope that we are choosing people that carry those same biblical values and want to live lives that would honor Jesus. And, and if this becomes a real contentious topic because you've already known each other in that way and it's too hard emotionally and all, and all that stuff, I'm not trying to say it's not hard emotionally. I think it can be. But um, that may be a, a really good indicator to say, well, maybe this isn't the right person for me to, to move forward to in, into marriage. Yeah, and I think that's why we alluded when we talked on sexuality that uh, who you engage in a relationship with is really important. That don't awaken love before it, uh, it pleases. You choose wisely. Don't settle. Um, enter into a relationship with people who are also pursuing Jesus as the center of their life. You do that, these things become less complicated. But when they do become complicated, I think uh, Kevin's right on that God honors obedience. Moving on. This is going very quick and easy. Except it's not going that quick. No? Okay. (laughs) How do we handle the good deeds of other faiths? Moreover, can their actions be righteous if they don't accept Christ? How do we handle the good deeds of other faiths? Um, I'll take a stab at this. You okay with that? Either of you? Good? Yeah. Okay. Um, I... This can, this can be a really simple and straightforward answer. It could be really complicated. I'll try to make it semi-complicated, <laughs> but not overly complicated, okay? Um, this, there's two opinions, I would say, related to this particular idea. First of all, uh, there is the opinion that, and I, I believe this is a true statement that carries opinion to it, that we are all created in the image of God, that all of us are image bearers. Uh, Genesis talks about the idea that we have been created in the image of the Trinity, uh, both male and female, that we bear the characteristics of God, that there are unique things about us. There have been many books that have written on this particular subject uh, that talk about the unique gifts, qualities, characteristics, personhood that exist because we've been 
made in the image of God. Uh, it's not just intellect, emotions, and will that's central to that idea. It's imagination, creativity, beauty, uh, the ability to like determine or desire something, uh, to act on that desire. There's so many qualities that, that make up what it means to be made in the image of God. And God, when he declared who we are and de- designed us, made us, uh, declared us to be good. He declared all creation to be good. And so in all of us is this inherent goodness that when we see it acted out, we look at it, point to it, and go, man, that is beautiful, and that comes from God, right? On the flip side of that coin is the fact that all of us are also uh, sinners, that all of us, as we know, the Scripture communicates that from the beginning of time when sin entered the world that all of us are in a state of fallenness, that we all have this broken relationship with God. So it leads some to say that we have total depravity, that we're all evil, that uh, everything that flows from us, in fact, the scriptures at one point make the statement that all of our good deeds are as filthy rags, that what we have to offer really isn't anything unless Jesus Christ is behind it. Um, So some would answer that because we're in our sin... That once we enter into a relationship with God, the old has been made new. Therefore, our actions, the things that we do, have or carry the weight of Jesus doing them through us. Therefore, they are good things that are done. So some would say, very simply, rounding out this question, that none of your works are considered good or considered righteous until they're in Jesus Okay? Others would answer it by saying that we're created in the image of God and His goodness, and some of what we do is moral, is right, is good, but that moral right and goodness does not lead us to a restored relationship with Him. That's only through Jesus. Make sense? Somewhat complicated. I gave you both sides of the argument because I think there's truth in both sides. There's probably incorrect things on both sides also. But by both sides, it carries on the conversation. You can continue the dialogue. Do you guys want to add anything to that? My opinion is that that innateism, if you had to put it on a, for me, if you had to put it on a scale, that innateism carries a little bit more weight. And so we can see, even in people who are deceived, um, we can see the righteousness of God in them, even though they are living in deception and even though they may be living in sin. That that innateism still shows that created, that the creator in them. Um, so we can accept a good deed by somebody of a different faith and know that they are deceived in their belief but can still see the righteousness and goodness of God through that act. Yeah, and I think a continuum is a good way to talk about it. Some people that just heard uh, Jeff and our hard Calvinists go, oh, because total depravity is like rule number one. Um, and so we're all evil and bad and nothing good comes from us until Jesus And so they hear that and go, but it's a continuum, all right? So total depravity way over here, innate goodness, uh, clean slate, tabula rasa, all of that way down here, in between. Got it? That's good. Good. Send your email to Russ. (laughs) Thanks. (laughs) Okay. Uh, How can someone respond in the third way when they or someone they know is being physically or violently threatened, for example, being raped? Uh, Kevin's the third way guy, so Kev. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, uh, I'll I'll jump at this one. Um, 
this is inevitably where the question goes. Uh, so anytime you begin to talk about just war, nonviolence, uh, living in those types of ways or having this conversation, the question always boils down to, well, what do you do if somebody breaks into my house and is holding a gun to, to my wife and family? I even mentioned this when I, when I spoke on this topic. Um, this is a doctrinal issue. Um, so what I believe may be different than you. So I can only really talk from my opinion. Here's what I do. Somebody breaks into my house, is holding a gun to my family. The first thing that I, I want to say before anything else is I pray that none of us ever find our situ our, ourselves in this situation. It's a horrendous thing to even think about, or, or being raped, whatever that is. These are horrendous things. And so I pray that none of us have to actually deal with these things. Second, the way that God has moved in me, the way that I have understand the scriptures is uh, I, I am moving more and more towards a nonviolent lifestyle. This is, this is how I am being convicted. And so as much as I can tell from where I'm at now, I would put myself in between that gun and whoever that gun is being pointed at and offer myself in lieu of my family, my kids, whatever. And third, I begin to pray. Pray that, that God's mercy would be upon us, that God's mercy would be upon my family, that, that somehow, some way, something could happen where we wouldn't be injured. Um, how this has really fleshed itself out in, in my life is um, I, I've begun to take some small steps towards eliminating maybe some of the, uh, the things that would lead me towards the temptation to act violently back at that person. So um, I have friends who have guns in their home. I have friends who keep bats by their bed just in case the situation happens. I used to be a bat-by-the-bed kind of guy um, thinking... Well, if somebody breaks in my house, I have my Louisville slugger right here, and I'll really take it to them. Um, I, again, through the movement of God's work in my life, I've begun to eliminate those things. So there's no longer a bat by my bed. There's no longer a gun by my bed. I, I've just said I, I want to relieve the temptation, knowing that um, I've been subjected to a lifetime of violence through media, through, um, through just our, our culture, our, our warring nature. So my temptation may be to react violently in that, in that situation. And so I've just said, I want to try to eliminate everything that could lead me down that path and trust that God is in control of my life. Trust that God is in control of the situation, knowing that I can only control my actions. I can't control what other people do. Um, I would never, ever judge somebody that would react violently back. So to the situation of, of a woman being raped, if she fought back, uh, if she gouged a person's eyes out or, or shot a person, I, I don't feel like it's my place to then step in and say, well, you didn't act nonviolently. How could you ever do that? That, that is a situation that I will never, uh, I hope that I will never fully understand. Um, so I would never judge somebody that reacted in that way. All I can speak to is for myself, from the way that I read uh, the scripture, the way that I see Jesus interacting, the things that I see Jesus teaching is the movement in my life has been towards nonviolence. And so um, that's the way that I, I want to live. Um, Kevin doesn't have a bat under his bed, but he does CrossFit, so he's got two loaded guns. <laughs> Great, thank you. <laughs> um, I, I, too, feel... As I mature more and more in my faith, I feel like God is calling me to a position of nonviolence, uh, pacifism, if you will. But, but I'll also say this. Um, I know that other giants of the faith, Dietrich Bonhoeffer being one, wrestled with this, were tormented by it. 
and actually looked back to Augustine's words in his novel, The City of God, I believe it was book five, where he said that we have a moral responsibility to defend the defenseless. And uh, that's where Bonhoeffer went with being involved in the plot to overthrow Hitler, even though it included violence. So I think pacifism is an ideal that when it matches or intersects with reality always has a different outcome. So we can idealistically say we would put ourselves between the bullet and, and whatever. That's a very idealistic way of looking at things. How we would actually act in the moment. Um, I mean, pacifism works great if everybody else in the world is also a pacifist. So it, it's where that idealism intersects with reality where we get an outcome that may not always match um, what we expect that outcome to be. So th this is a very um, difficult issue, uh, but I, I also think that there is a place where we can look to Augustine and say that we do have a moral obligation to somehow defend the defenseless. The third way would be looking at a nonviolent solution to, to do that. Uh, yeah, I think people, um, they tend to say, well, yeah, but the scripture says love always protects, so don't I have the right to, to protect my family to do what I need to, and, and I would, again, from my position, I would say, yeah, but does protection always mean violence? D does our understanding of protecting uh, those always need to be violence? And, and you could also point to scripture that says, um, I mean, Jesus instructed us to love our enemies. So, I mean, maybe you could make the kind of the leap there that then maybe we should be protecting our enemies as well. If love always protects and we're to love our enemies, then you could, you could maybe make a, a case that way. The bottom line here is... Um, I think uh, whether you land on that, that just war side, you land on the pacifism uh, side, I think we have, to, we have to at least wrestle with what is, what is the greatest influence on our actions? What is the greatest influence uh, or, or what is the greatest informer of the way that we act? Is it the life of Jesus um, or is it an excessively violent culture that we live in? And I wrestle with that stuff. So um, I'm not saying that if you read Jesus, you can't, you can't believe in just war. There are many incredible theologians that have gone there and have gone to a place to say, I, I believe in Jesus, I believe in what he teaches. I still believe we have the right to protect uh, you know, people. I still have, believe I have the right to protect my family. Um, I think we just need to at least wrestle with that idea kind of up here of what is it that's truly informing, uh, informing our actions, informing or influencing our actions in these situations. If I was to add one thing, I would add this. Whatever you choose, be consistent. Uh, I think far too often we have inconsistent ethics that uh, on big end scales down here, we go, oh, yeah, very clear, very concise. And then when it gets all the way down to the nitty gritty, it's super gray or cloudy or we allow for loopholes to go, well, I can love people in violent ways, right? Can't I? Or something like that. You know, like we try to find little ways around where be consistent the whole way through. So if you believe one thing, all the way through, believe it. Um, and I think that was part of what you were alluding to with Bonhoeffer is uh, he felt it to be um, a real challenging thing because he wanted to be consistent throughout. Do you want to add any more to that? Or no? Well, and, and many would say that Bonhoeffer believed that, he, um, that the cost was his very salvation that by being engaged in this, he was being obedient to, to the idea of protecting the defenseless, but that by doing so, he condemned himself to eternal separation from God. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay, let's uh, move on. We probably have time for maybe one or two more yeah. at best. 
Talking about gender roles, how should couples address where the Bible tells wives to submit to their husbands and husbands sacrifice themselves as Christ did? Great, gender roles. Um, let's, let's just get right at uh, this particular thing because I think the passage you're mentioning would be in Ephesians. If you have your Bible, you can turn there. Um, I will try not to make this very lengthy so that it doesn't have to be the last question, but it may in fact be. Uh, I love this particular topic uh, for several reasons. One, because it reveals, I think, very clearly how we at times um, are pretty inconsistent with our interpretation of Scripture. All right? So the particular passage that is being talked about, wives submitting to their husbands, husbands sacrificing or loving their wives, is found in uh, chapter 5 of Ephesians, starting in verse 22. It says this, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and he himself its Savior. Now the church submits to Christ, so wives also should submit in everything to their husbands. Verse 25, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own body. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Okay? We'll kind of stop there. Well, then it goes on to say, uh, leave your uh, family, cleave or hold fast to your wife. Um, love love your wife as you love yourself. Okay? That's the general passage that we allude to. We often uh, hear the teaching, wives submit your husbands, husbands love your wives. Now what we do is we often fail to read it within context, and one of the reasons we do this is the convenient breakdown of chapter titles and passages. So you must first know that when Ephesians was written, it was just written, and there were no chapters, there were no verses, there were no, it was just straight text. Straight text. And then we went into the text and went, well, how are we going to explain to people where to go find it in the text? Well, what if we broke it into chapters and verses to make it easier so then we can say things like turn to Ephesians 5.22. Okay? So we did that. That was not, um, Paul's original writing was not breaking it down that way. If you look to the passage immediately before this passage, you're going to find in verse 21, it says this. Uh, Well, I'll start reading in verse um, 19. It talks about addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with all your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, and submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So the first statement in this text to give our whole text context is this. Husbands, submit to your wives. Wives, submit to your husbands. Mutually submit or lay down your own desires for the sake of the other one. That's what it's saying. We often conveniently leave that piece out. First and foremost, because people have asked me this, why does it say uh, wives submit to their husbands? And I turn it right around and go, well, that's a great question. Why does it say husbands submit to your wives? It doesn't say that. Well, it does, actually. It's submit to one another out of reverence of Christ. 
It's important to recognize that that's a command for both of us. Now, Paul goes on to explain what does that submission look like? What does it look like to actually live into the idea of submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ? He explains it to the wife first by saying it looks like this, and he talks further about submission, further about laying aside your desires or hopes for the sake of the other. Then when it comes to men, he addresses an issue that I think is very uh, significant to the way we love and submit and show respect to our wives, and that is the issue of love. Far too often, we um, kind of just bowl through love, take it as you want it, but we're going for our agenda, we're driving for what we want, and then often you've heard it communicated in years past, well, wives, you just need to give in to that because here we go. No, the center of this command in teaching is the idea that husbands are to, to love our wives. And if you look at what he says, it's pretty profound. He, he says it's supposed to be a sacrificial love, a love where I'm willing to give myself, just as Christ did, for the sake of my wife. It's also to be a purifying love. What I mean by that is it's supposed to present her as holy and blameless before God, that I'm supposed to be about whatever's going to make her look more like Jesus. It then talks about a couple other areas, like uh, not just sacrificial, but this idea that I'm putting her first in everything, and that I care for her more than I care for myself. So that idea of love is just as profound in this passage, or even more so than this idea of submission, but it's all under the heading of Husbands submitting and wives submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Make sense? If the garden was so good, why was the serpent allowed to be in the garden in the first place? It's a good place to start. It's perfect. Genesis. It's easy. (laughs) Uh, Well, I'll I'll start to take maybe a little bit of a stab at it. Um, Certainly, this question uh, probably comes from several different angles. One, asking or begging the question... Uh, where is God's heart in this? When he created everything, he made everything good. How did he allow evil? Why did he allow evil? So maybe those are some of the questions that come uh, into your mind. I want to kind of tackle it from a slightly maybe different perspective. As I think about that question, one of the things that uh, strikes me is why is the serpent there? I think um, first and foremost, we would hold that the serpent is Satan, that Satan's desire would be to thwart the plan of God. So Fundamentally, the easy answer would be that he is there to kind of ruin and mess up the very goodness that God created. One of the questions we do have to wrestle with, and this would be a question for um, that could go numerous different directions, um, but I think you have to wrestle with what exactly did happen at the very beginning. What was creation like? How long did creation take? What, when did the serpent, when was he created? Um, was he created good? I think the answer is yes. I think the Old Testament kind of speaks to the idea that Satan at one point um, led a rebellion because of pride and his belief that he could be as good as God. If that is true, then at some point he rallied the forces to try to overthrow God in some unique way. He failed, which we knew he would. He was then sent uh, from his particular position in heaven and no longer allowed to Uh, live in that position. 
Uh, even though we still know, according to the scriptures, that he is in heaven. That's the unique thing, that Satan still has a presence there with God and, uh, and is an accuser, the text says. So he's always still doing that serpent thing where he's accusing and questioning and um, critiquing. But one of the things that I think, and just to keep this short, uh, we have to evaluate is when Satan did all of that, at some point then, Satan took on the form of a serpent, entered into that particular equation, and then began to try to thwart the plans of God, to which God said in Genesis, I think, 3, 16, 17, that um, it didn't work. I'm going to crush your head, and you'll strike the heel, but in the end, we know the rest of the story. All right? So I don't know if that fully answers it, but it wasn't as God placed this serpent there just for the sake of figuring it out. But as human beings, we have those choices, and uh, when Satan was there, we gave in to that particular choice not to obey. Any other additional thoughts? Jeff's brow is furrowed. Jeff wants to jump in. Go for it. Um, this, to me, begs the theodicy of evil question. What, why, does, why do good things or bad things happen to good people, essentially? Um, why does evil exist? Why does God allow for evil to take place? And, and there are a lot of different opinions on that very topic. Um, so I, I guess I could go in two different ways with this. One is to respond to your um, pattern of creation, when things took place, how they took place, did this happen in the first 24-hour period or the second 24-hour period, which could bring up a whole other issue of debate, um, and, and the existence of evil. Um, we know evil exists. We know God exists. We know God is good. That creates an intellectual inconsistency for us. God is good. God exists. Evil exists. What's up with that? Um, so I would say continue wrestling with it. I don't think there's an easy black or white answer to that. Um, what most of us have said in the Christian world is that God loves us so much that he gives us the choice. And wherever choice enters in, um, to, from a black and white perspective, there's a good choice and a bad choice. Uh, without the bad choice, there's no choice at all. Um, I'll leave it at that. I, this is a great conversation for ongoing. I think it's just it's too long, I think, to get yep. into. Would Kevin, agree. would you? No, I would agree, without belaboring the point. Moving on. Next. What about sex within marriage? We've had several sex questions so far today. How do we continue to honor each other and make it mutual enjoyment, not just a single-sided gratification? Great. So in the first, uh, first service, we answered more of the question of uh, if you've already been engaging in sex outside of marriage, what should you do? Should you stop? Should you continue? Um, we tried to speak into that a little bit. Uh, this is talking about sex within marriage and how do we do it in a way that is mutually gratifying and honorable to each other. So who, who wants to jump in? Well, I would, yeah, I would say to the first question, we are all pro-sex in marriage. Very I think much. we're yeah. all for that I'm, very I'm for much. It. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. That's, that's an easy Good. answer. Yeah. yeah. I, I suggested a period of abstinence, but Christy wouldn't go for it, so... <laughs> Three guys up here, you know this is going to happen. <laughs> well, I, a couple of things with how this is worded. Um, yes, we're absolutely pro-sex within marriage. How do we continue to honor each other and make it mutual enjoyment? Um, I don't know if I'll have a chance to answer the submission part of this, but I think it plays into this. When we mutually submit one to another, 
um, we are looking out for the gratification and benefit of the other before we're looking that for, out for that for ourselves. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's what submission means healthy in a healthy way in marriage. Um, the way this is worded sounds like there's one party that maybe achieves more gratification um, than another in this. And if that's the case, then I would say that there are some issues within that marriage that would need to be looked at um, and, and processed and helped. Um, it shouldn't be a one-sided single gratification. It should be uh, the perfect union of two individuals. So um, I think we honor each other well when we're looking out for the other's gratification and not our own, part of that submission of marriage. Yeah, I would uh, just echo that, that uh, in any aspect of your relationship in marriage, if you enter into it for the other person's benefit and for their best interest, um, weirdly enough, you get a best interest out of it as well. So if I enter into a relationship where I'm going, I'm just going to serve my wife and I'm going to find ways to demonstrate great love toward her in my very act of doing that, it is amazing how often I receive mutual benefit from that. I think the same is true in sex, that if I enter into a sexual relationship with my wife and I, I am in it for her benefit and enjoyment, often it works the other way for me, where I also enjoy it. All right? So I think that's important to recognize that you're going into it for the other. I'd add one more practical thing. Get help. There is this incredible stigma on counseling for whatever reason. And uh, get help. I mean, if, if you find yourself in this position, don't be afraid to ask questions. Don't be afraid to bring it to your small group. Don't be afraid to call a counselor and say, we'd love to do a couple of sessions of marriage counseling and, and talk through some of this stuff. What, what I have recognized after 10 years of being married is I don't have all the answers. And I won't have all the answers. And I'm a selfish human being at, at my nature, you know. Uh, and it's not until I expose that stuff and I'm willing to invite others into my process to where I can learn and grow and, and be a better husband to my wife. So don't be afraid to pick up the phone. Don't be afraid to come to one of us. Don't be afraid to go to your small group leader or whoever that person is to get help. Good. Is giving in time, works, and love equally accepted in God's eyes? So I think at the core of this would be the series we did on, uh, on money. Green elephant. Uh, we talked about greed. We talked about use of possessions. We talked about all of that. Let me come at this one from a couple different angles, and guys, feel free to chime in. Um, I think it is absolutely essential that when we consider the idea of giving, that we consider it holistically. Too often, we just make giving about a pocketbook and then pulling something out and giving it, and then kind of washing our hands of it and saying we're done. Uh, I think giving should be holistic. It should be all of life. And it should be a posture that we have where we respond at a moment's notice as giving people. That God is a God that is a generous God. And I think he invites us to be generous people. So that does include time. It includes the sacrifice of that time. It includes investing in other people in that way. I think it also does include uh, work. The, the very things that you do, your hands, your service, uh, I would even go as far as to say, and I have challenged many people with this, that if, uh, if you are a business owner at some level, if you have skills and abilities that you uh, make uh, income from, I would encourage you to use part of that, not just to give out of what you make, but to actually give the very thing that you're good at or the very thing that you do. Let me give you a couple examples. I know Christian counselors who 
and tithe or give part of their business. So they take a certain number of reduced clients or a certain number of free clients because they want to give out of their very business, not just out of their own bank account. I know businessmen who own construction companies that every year build a certain number of their homes at cost to bless people within the community. I know people who give away resources that they have in their own business. So they're giving out of their business as well as giving out of their very life. So I would encourage you, at whatever level that is, um, to find ways with all of your life to be a generous and giving person. But let me add this. I don't think, personally, this is my opinion, I do not think that giving of time, service, resources, sharing your lawnmower with your next door neighbor or any of that, while it's all good, I do not think it replaces, in my opinion, the giving of financial resources. Uh, The Bible makes it clear that uh, there is something unique about the power that money has over us. In fact, it even says that you cannot serve both God and money, that there is some loyalty aspect with money that is unique comparative to other areas of our life. And so the Bible makes it very clear that there should be in all of us a giving of our financial resources towards kingdom investment. Now, I'm not going to get into the specifics of what specific amount you're supposed to give. Um, A lot of people talk about that 10% amount, that tithe amount. What's interesting is they refer back to the Old Testament and say, hey, the tithe is 10% in the Old Testament. If you actually do the math, it's called a tithe, but many people estimate it was probably around 23% of a general person's income would be given away. That would be the regulation. So if we're holding to... Whether it's a 10% or more or less is not the point. The point is to give, to give sacrificially, the New Testament speaks to that idea. And uh, so whatever percentage that is, to be able to give sacrificially, I think is a calling we have. And it, and it shows where our heart is. The scriptures speak to the idea of where your treasure is, there your heart is also. And so I don't think that those things replace I just think those things can be added on to what you're also giving financially. You guys want to add to that? Generosity is not compartmentalized. Uh, and I think we find all kinds of ways to justify a lack in one area by saying, well, I, I do more in this other area. I just don't think we get it pass that way. Yeah, I think anytime uh, you begin to do mental gymnastics to try, <laughs> to try to figure out the way of getting out of giving, whether it's time, money, energy, whatever that is, then, then I think you've you got to check your motives on that. All right, moving on. How do we deal with the God-mandated genocide of the Old Testament and reconcile that with Jesus, or God's message of love in the New Testament? As Christians, it almost seems we we're talking about two different gods with two different personalities. <laughs> it's yeah. all now. Wow. Yeah. Good. Uh, I'll take a, a quick um, crack at this one, and I'll just be honest and say I struggle with this. This is a hard one for me, and uh, I've gone back and forth on this one, and am very much in journey, as I think we're probably very much in journey on this. Um, because I think it's true where we say at times it does seem like God in the Old Testament is very different than Jesus in the New Testament. 
I think you have really one of two options. Either you say, well, these different gods really are the same, and then you have to figure out some biblical references to say, well, this is, this is where it says he's the same today, to, you know, tomorrow, forever, and so on and so forth. We look at Scripture to say, well, no, he is the same, and I just have to live in that tension. Uh, or you may view Scripture in a way where you see God as being in process, uh, that God maybe uses wrath in the Old Testament, but that his wrath is fully appeased on the cross and in love. And so we see that God does grow uh, over time as, he, um, as his wrath still is appeased, appeased, as he has that still within his character, but the, the ultimate love on the cross is the final answer. Where I land on this uh, in finality is that Jesus is the greatest revelation, the only, the fullest, the, the biggest revelation of who God is, and that we have to view Old Testament through the lens of Jesus that it's all about Jesus, that it hinges all on him. And, and so we read scripture, uh, and we talked about this uh, in last service, that scripture being revelatory, that we read the Old Testament and the New Testament, Paul included, and, and through the very end, that last page, that we read all of scripture through the lens of Jesus being the final revelation of who God is. Did you guys add anything? The incarnation changes everything. Um, we see that in John, of course. We see it throughout the, all the Gospels, um, that God dwelt among us. Uh, we also know that if Jesus is who he says he is, which we believe, that Jesus is the complete manifestation of God. So there is no separation. We can't say there's the character of God here and the character of God here. Jesus is God. So all the parts you love about Jesus and all the parts that you dislike about the, um, the war in the Old Testament, it, we cannot separate them apart. Jesus is the manifestation of the complete God. We don't get to choose between the natures of God. Yeah. It's, it's God. Yeah. Like we said, too, before, some of these questions that we're answering today are questions that have been trying to be answered for thousands of years. And so to, to think that we would, in finality, close the book on this one, or that you yourself, in finality, would come to a final, complete decision, I think is somewhat arrogant. So some of this stuff... There's tension, and, and I think we have to be willing to say, I sit across from you, and you view this differently than I do, and that's okay. We, we are unified uh, in, in this place and, and under uh, Jesus' grace, but some of this, just there's tension in it, and we've got to wrestle with it. Yeah, I won't add any additional thoughts, but I will add this question um, that I've wrestled with. Sometimes I wonder if God doesn't act in a certain way that makes sense to us, even though it might. Um, so let me, he kind of bends the ideal to compensate for our issues. For example, I think marriage is intended for life, but then God kind of enters into the equation at one point and goes, well, in light of the situation and in light of where you're at, I'm going to not have the most ideal, but choose a posture that kind of sits in the middle in a way that um, brings you to a new place, and we can continue this conversation. And so sometimes, perhaps, the question is, his actions are that way more for our sake than for his, if that makes sense. Something to wrestle with and think about. I'm sure there'll be no questions with that one afterwards, so that's great. We can move on. (laughs) All right. How should mental health in church leadership be handled? 
Gentlemen? Um, this mental health is um, such a taboo subject, and it, it really shouldn't be because it is prevalent. Every single person in this room has been touched um, in some way uh, by mental health issues, whether it's within your family or, by, or within yourself um, or other areas. We're all touched by this idea of mental health. It might be shocking to hear that uh, the pastorate, those who serve in full-time ministry, have one of the highest levels of depression of all occupations. Uh, very, very common for um, those in full-time ministry to experience levels of depression for a variety of reasons. Um, so how do we deal with mental health in church leadership? It should be handled um, upfront, openly, um, critically. We should be, um, when I say we should be, I'm assuming that I'm in that full-time ministry position, which I am, um, held accountable and loved. And it should not be something that just gets brushed under the carpet. I've seen a lot of um, church environments where, um, I'm going to use blunt language, where full-time staff members are um, ridden hard and put away wet, if that makes sense. Um, It's a horse analogy. (laughs) Uh, Used and abused until they break. And then when they break, we'll just bring the next one in. Um, And that's a really sad state of affairs, I think. So I would say to um, those in congregation of churches is to look out for the mental health of your leaders. Um, Ask them how they're doing. Ask them how they're dealing with hard situations. Ask them um, how their marriages are. Ask them the questions that they often ask you. Ask those questions boldly. Um, because mental health is an issue, um, certainly in, in the pastorate and in ministry. So please help us. Please help us. You said any sex, whether it is homosexual or heterosexual, is sin outside of marriage. Can you define marriage? Because some may think that as long as you are married, it is okay to have sex, even though it's homosexual. Good. We knew this would come up at some point. Um, this is a, obviously, was it last week? My weeks blend together. Uh, we talked about this idea of sex outside of marriage. Um, we got probably three or four questions that came in that said, well, now that uh, Washington has a new definition of marriage, does that change how you would answer that question. Well, let me say two things. One, still any sex outside of marriage would be disobedience according to the scriptures. As it relates to the issue of marriage, um, this is obviously a very complicated um, and long answer, but I'm going to try to make it as short as possible. Um, I believe, this is my opinion, um, I believe that marriage, as defined according to the word of God, is between a husband and a wife before God and witnesses, okay? For a husband and wife before God and witnesses. Now, because I hold that particular opinion, it puts me in a unique position because I think that the way we have marriage set up in the United States of America is probably absolutely incorrect, What I mean by that is we have very much married the church and the state on this particular issue. Okay, now this is all my opinion, 
But I think there should be a separation of church and state. It's been mandated kind of from the beginning. But that we have a separation of church and state on all issues. We rally for that idea often. But when it comes to this area of, of uh, marriage, we tend to see them as one and the same. Part of why we see them as one and the same is because of the idea of tax benefits or because of the idea of a union seeing that union by the eyes of the government. So let me say this. First and foremost, marriage is before God, apart from the government. You can be married. You can be married before God. You can be married before witnesses and never sign a document that says by the state of Washington or by the, the United States that I'm legally married. Marriage is not in my opinion, again, should not be a state thing. It is a God thing. It is before God and witnesses. All right? Now, it becomes complicated when you make it a state thing, when you join the two things together. It gets complicated because of a couple things. One, I believe that my position and my responsibility is to answer to God, not to the state as it relates to religious practices before God. But when I perform a ceremony in some level, what I am doing is I'm becoming an agent of the state at that point. What I am doing is ratifying a state document with my signature, and I'm saying I believe before the state of Washington or whatever state we're in when we do the ceremony that you are now legally bound to this particular marriage in the state's eyes. One of the tensions I have with that is that the state wants me and is very glad to have me sign that document up front, but the state never comes back to me when it's time for divorce. The state never then says, oh, well, these two that committed to this union for life have decided not to stick in that union. Can you please sign this document again, therefore saying that you're okay with us ripping up that document for that document ceasing to be what it originally was intended to be. Well, they don't come back to the church on that. Why? Because they just want to make it a state issue. But at the beginning, they make it both a church and a state issue. It's a problem because what it does then is it begins to drive a wedge in what I believe to be um, the church's position also on equal rights. I am for civil unions. Again, this is my personal opinion. I think civil unions... And equality for people, regardless of their preferences, desires, orientation, is something that should be championed. Now, that's apart from the posture of marriage. Does that make sense? You got a state thing here, you got a marriage thing here. Equal rights over here, freedom, decisions, equality, taxes, etc. Okay? That's a state decision, not a church decision. That should be equality for all people. Over here, I believe, husband, wife, before God, and witnesses, the two are separate. Does that make sense? So that is my particular opinion. That opinion might differ across the board. That opinion would definitely perhaps differ out here as well. Um, but it, be, it becomes very complicated. And New Communities had many conversations about uh, this very topic because I think it is a topic that will come up more and more. I will say one final thought on this, that um, my, I often look at the scriptures and I question or desire or wish 
sometimes that it said something different than what I envision or imagine or believe that it's saying. So I say that to say, I wish many of my friends could enter into a relationship in which all people see it as a, a beautiful union. And yet I feel like, in my understanding and interpretation of the scriptures, is that isn't the case, that marriage is for a husband and wife. And even though I desire for um, them to be able to enter into something like that before God, and in my reading of the scriptures, I don't think that that's the case. Does that make sense? So, other thoughts? I don't know. You have something? We can blame Henry VIII for starting this <laughs> issue with the church and marriage in the state. And uh, the church had something to say about his marriage, and he decided to start a new church. Um, so, this goes back a, a long, long way. But the church, in a lot of ways, ceded its um, stance on the meaning of marriage to the state. Uh, in the U.S., it happened under the IRS for tax code purposes, thinking that the, IR, or that the state would hold the same moral value that the church does over time. That was proven to not be true. And now the, the church is wanting to come back in and take back control of marriage from the state. It, this is an ongoing debate. I think you stated it very well. When in doubt, blame Henry VIII. <laughs> I've always said that. Blame him in the No. Yeah, I've heard you say that often. Yeah. Yeah. And All don't right. marry him, if you're a woman, don't, don't marry Henry. All right, why doesn't New Community have any female elders? It's a great question. Yeah, it's a good one. So this probably, uh, I'm guessing, would come off the heels of um, Russ did a, kind of a, almost a two-part talk on women in leadership. Um, so... Again, we didn't make a church stance, but the trajectory that, that Russ communicated and, and one that I would agree in, again, this is an opinion, uh, is that women should be empowered to hold those positions. Um, and I would say we have asked females to be elders, but for uh, extenuating circumstances, for whatever reasons, uh, no woman has come forward and said, I would love to step in to that role. So uh, one of the values that we hold here is that we are going to ask the best possible person, the person that God leads us to, into that role. So the next person we ask could be a woman. The next person we ask could be a male. The next six people could be male. The next six people could be women. Uh, we are availing ourselves to the spirit to say, Lord, who is it in our community that you have risen to the top to step into this role of leadership? Uh, who is it that you are leading us to to ask? And uh, that is the person that we will ask in faith and in trust that you're going to honor that and, and bring together the best possible team uh, and group of people to lead our community forward. Yeah, and I'll add one additional thing to that because maybe even though I know it was uh, communicated after this particular um, message, I think one of the other things, every one of our elders is married. So maybe a question could be posed, why not singles? We have also asked singles if they would be willing to step into that role. And so uh, the, whole, the whole way we do eldership, um, just for those of you that aren't familiar with we spend a lot of time praying. We ask God for who has, as Kevin said, risen to the top. And by that, we don't mean who should be calling shots and making authoritative decisions, but rather, who is God, as the New Testament talks about the idea, who has God really laid the Spirit of God thick on that person in a way where they see their role is to serve the body of Christ in a, in a real um, tangible way? 
And then what we do is we ask them to pray about it for a period of time. We then invite the entire community into it by um, informing the community this is who we believe God has asked to fill this role. And we invite you to respond with a, yes, we believe that same thing too. Or to come to us and say, hey, here's some things that make me a little nervous about this particular decision. We leave that open for several weeks, and then we have a time where we commission, lay hands on, and and really uh, encourage that person to live into what we are all sensing God is calling them to do. So we won't belabor it anymore. Let's move on. Is it possible to live into eternity kingdom values while still on earth? It's a great question. Um, actually, the simplest way to answer this is I think that's what we're actually called to do. I think it's the very thing we're called to do. Um, to live into, so you've heard, many of you have probably heard the tension of the already but not yet, that God is the king of everything and yet it isn't fully realized in the way that we envision and know that it will be at some day. But if you read through the Gospels, particularly Jesus' teaching in Matthew, there's very much the idea of live into the future as much as you can in the present. So whatever that highest ideal is, whatever that greatest ethic is, whatever the true calling at the end of time is, we're supposed to live into that with all that we are. Uh, it's very countercultural. It's very not this empire, but rather that kingdom. It means we are definitely, uh, we answer to God for our very actions, but I think we're absolutely supposed to live into the future in the present. Chen, are we out of questions? We're out of questions. We've covered all of them. Well, then we'll open it up for we'll questions. Open, well, let's open it up. Perfect. That's exactly We've exhausted what we just said. all of the possible questions. <laughs> Between first service and second, there may be additional questions that you have right now, even as we've been talking. Um, feel free, toss out one or two of them now, and then, uh, as you know, afterwards, we're going to sit up here in this corner and we'll uh, spend some time. But we've got maybe about five minutes or so to answer questions before we move to the next thing. Yes? It's a great question. It's a great question. When it comes to the issue of debt and giving... If you're convicted, challenged, desire to give more, and yet you have debt, what, it, what should the response be to that? It's great. Uh, I'll, I'll give a proactive side, maybe, and then uh, we can follow it up with maybe a little bit more specific to the actual question. Um, I think as Christians, we need, to, we need to posture ourselves and move in such ways when we steward our money where we are living outside of debt as much as it is possible. Um, so... I understand many of us own homes that's accruing a huge debt. Um, many of us have car loans, so on and so forth. We are indebted to people. I think to have true freedom that you need to try to eliminate all debt if possible or as much as the, of that debt as possible. So um, whenever we do marriage counseling, so uh, you know, a young couple comes to Grace and I and, and says, we want to sit down with you and, and do marriage counseling. And, one of the topics that we cover is money. It's maybe one of the most significant topics. Uh, oftentimes, it's the one that people come in with the most arguments <laughs> behind, or uh, they've talked about it none because they don't even know where to start. Uh, the first thing we say is fundamentally, do not accrue debt. From here on, here on out, do not accrue credit card debt. Don't buy a boat when you don't have the money for it. Don't do stupid stuff with your money. Now, 
There will be a time where you may want to buy a house, and that's your decision. My wife and I, we, we have a, a loan on our house. Uh, I think that's, that's kind of a culturally understood thing. I think that's okay. But there are other people that would say, don't. Don't be indebted in, into, uh, into your home if, if you want true freedom. Grace and I don't have true freedom to pick up and go if God calls us to Africa. It would take us a number of months in order to figure out what we need to do to sell our house and to, or to get renters and do all that stuff. So um, I, I think we can be more, maybe more proactive than our culture is surrounding us and saying we're a people that has been given money to steward and we feel like we need to live outside of debt as much as it is possible. Yeah, it's clear there's a debt crisis in this country. I mean, young people are graduating from college now with $200,000 in debt. Um, how do you start life like that? How do you give generously when you're um, paying off student loans and then other debts you have or, or responsibilities you have for a living? Um, ultimately, though, I think it comes down to that, again, we don't get a pass for the debts that we've incurred sure. to, be, to not be generous. So it's a first fruits idea that, yes, you have to pay off your debts, but you also have a responsibility um, to give of your time, talent, treasure, in this case treasure, um, to God. I think first, even before that debt gets paid off. Now, people could argue with me on that, but my opinion. Yeah, and I would echo uh, the same, that I think there's a responsibility to give. I've had conversations with many couples who have gone down the road of, I'm going to try to pay off everything. And then once I do, or once I then get my three months of buffer or whatever amount of buffer is required, I don't know. Depends on what program you're on. Um, so you, once then, then I'll be able to start to give. And, and I think um, I've watched many couple who kept trying to fight for it, kept trying to fight for it, never could get there, never could get there. Ne- and then I finally had the, like, well, let's just try it the other way once. Let's try it for a month and see what happens. And then, amazingly, I mean, I, I'm not saying this in a sarcastic way at all, but when they began to give, then they began to pay down their debt and they began to live in a way that created freedom. Um, it, God says it for a reason. And, and if you actually believe it and live into it, he says, test me and see, and I will pour down abundant blessing. And not blessing so that you can have whatever, um, but blessing because you can continue to be a generous person and can continue to have your needs met. Yeah. yeah. Why did God let the Sonics leave? That's, people have been asking that for a while. Wow. Yeah. Um, greed. Greed. <laughs> that is why. But a new and improved team will come. <laughs> Other questions? Yeah. Oh, the, yeah. question, the question that was asked is, I'm going to try to state it. Um, you have seen churches where the pastors uh, drive a certain type of car, have a certain type of wardrobe, have a certain amount of technology. So how do the elders or how does the church keep the staff in check as it relates to their use of money or how much money they get or... And that's a great question. We were hoping you wouldn't ask, actually. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, that, that's, a, that's a, a challenging one. I, I, think, I think John, one of the elders, wants to answer this question. <laughs> Go for it, John. John, I'm sorry. Could you come answer this through the mic so we have it on? Um, 
the MP3? Just rose the pressure level. <laughs> Sorry. I'm an elder, so um, I'll, I'll try to answer that question. Um, first of all, there's a lot of things in life that are black and white issues. One and one always equals two. It's very black and white. There are other issues that are not nearly as black and white. Um, somebody may need more money than somebody else in their life. So what we try to do is deal with things on a personal level. We, we try to love each other, get to know each other, share our lives transparently with one another. And then, then you know, the, the nice thing is there isn't an infinite amount of money to, to figure out. So, um, you know, you, you look at what's there and you say, well, let's try to d divide it up this way. So to answer your question, I think most directly, I would say we use a lot of prayer and love. Um, I would also, just from a personal standpoint, add that, uh, and I've thrown this out there before, and I'm fine with saying it again, I have no issues with people knowing what I make and how I spend it. Every couple I sit down with to do marital counseling with, we go, here's our books, this is how we spend it, save it, use it, feel free to look through them. Um, I mean, I think if we all live with an open posture like that, it's, it's less of an issue. Um, so I would say, from that standpoint... Um, also, little plug, every uh, around April, we do an annual business meeting. About six of you show up, and um, we outline the whole budget. This is how we spend money. This is how we give it. This is what we do with it. Um, I think, listen, I think this very, very, very strongly, that your budget, I'll speak for the church, the church's budget is an indication of our value and belief system. The way we use our money demonstrates what we believe and even what we teach. So historically, if you were to take a poll right now across the nation, it's interesting to me that churches as an organization tell people, give 10% of everything you have to the church. If you ask the church what percentage of money it gives away, and doesn't spend on really cool buildings and nice stuff and et cetera, and then salaries and all of that. If you ask what churches give away, that number across the nation is at about 2%. Churches give away about 2%. That's to missions, the poor, etc. This last year, and I'm just going off the top of my numbers, off the top of my head, I would say new community has given somewhere between 20 and 22% of everything that comes in away. Um, do we wish that number was higher? Absolutely. But we also know that we have to pay for the sweet building. And, and the amount of money that comes in <laughs> really dictates, as John said, that you, you handle everything with a posture of wisdom and, and discipline and give as much as you can. Uh, away and yet also try to provide for what it is the church needs. So we are out of time. Um, afterwards, we're going to answer a bunch of questions, but we're going to shift gears here and Kevin's going to lead us into this next thing. Like I said, when we opened, this is, um, this, this could be dangerous, potentially dangerous for our community. Uh, I would say over the last nine weeks, I've been incredibly proud of the way that people have uh, responded, the way that people have come forward and after I spoke or, or Russ or anybody and said, hey, I, 
I kind of disagree or, or I want to, I want to challenge you on some of that stuff. And we love that. I mean, we love the ability to sit down have a cup of coffee and just say, let's look at this idea of war and peace and, and try to figure it out together. And I'm willing to be moved in that. And I hope the person I'm sitting across the table from is, is willing to be moved in that as well as we wrestle with this stuff and, and invite God in that process. So, um, this has been an incredibly profound series for me, for my family, for our group as we've processed that stuff. I hope and pray that it has been that for you as well. Um, my one encouragement and, uh, not an admonishment, but just an encouragement as we go is that Satan would want nothing more than to divide us through this series. He wants nothing more than for us to walk out of this building today with seeds of bitterness and, and, and feelings of division. And, and I just believe we cannot allow him to have that foothold, that Christ is very clear in his desire for unity amongst us as the body, as brothers and sisters in, in, in him. And we have to hold on to that. That has to be our rallying cry as we move forward. Uh, Russ began the series um, reading this quote, and I think it's a phenomenal quote. It says this, In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. I believe this idea is what we have to hold on to. The things that are salvific by nature, that, that, the, the creedal statements that we read in the beginning, we have, to, we have to stand firm on those things. But the doctrine and the opinions, uh, I, believe, I believe we need to be charitable with each other in that stuff and be generous with each other in that stuff. So as we move forward, let us hold on to the hope that God is a unifying God, that he wants us to be unified, and that uh, we can disagree with one another on some of this stuff, uh, but we can do it hand in hand, shoulder to shoulder as we walk out of this building. Uh, the band is going to come forward, um, and we're going to actually worship, and we're going to uh, come to the table and, and have a time of communion together. Once again, standing uh, together to say we are unified. We are unified in this stuff. So let me pray, and then the band will come, and, and we'll, uh, we'll take communion together.